Welcome to Round Hill Radio, the podcast from Round Hill Community Church. Through our conversations, we discover the holy and the ordinary, find moments of grace and peace, and redefine what we're talking about when we talk about faith. Well, a pleasure to be with you both. Well, it's great. Leslie, good morning to you and Bill. Great to see you. It's, uh, I can't tell you what uh, a personal a moment of satisfaction it is for me to, to be able to see you one-on-one. I've read your books. I've had a chance actually to hear you in person a couple of times sitting out in those many crowds that have been drawn to, you know, the urgent messages that you have been sending us about the plight of the earth. You have been putting squarely in front of us for many, many years now your deep care and passion for the creation and for all of us who share life together on that creation. So I think I just want to begin with a word of gratitude, first of all, for being that outstanding advocate through your writing, your teaching, your presence, your personal example. And so we're delighted to have you as our guest on Round Hill Radio Podcast. So again, welcome to you and thank you for being with us. Absolutely. And greetings from Vermont, where it's an absolutely gorgeous fall day here today as we're talking. Oh, fantastic. We want to savor every one of these, right? Uh, Very, very special times. So I have some questions that I've prepared in advance, and uh, they may flit from here to there. uh, But I wanted to start off with one that actually was inspired by a conversation I had with a clergy colleague recently. And I was talking with her about my own journey, how to become uh, a better, more effective advocate for the planet and the future, future generations. And I I said to her, so, uh, you know, hey, pretend you're giving me counsel about this. What would what would you recommend that I do to get started if I hadn't been really active and involved? And she said, Ed, I would find an apprentice. I would find somebody with whom you could have an apprenticeship who could teach you um, the wisdom of nature so that you would be a better advocate. I thought that was a really great answer, by the way, so I've been thinking about it. And I wanted to ask you the question to get started. Um, who was an apprentice for you? Or, or with whom did you have an apprenticeship if you did have one? And is that even something that's still happening for you now as you continue to grow in your journey around uh, the care of creation? Well, I've had many. I've been very lucky. Um, you know, my first job out of college was writing for the New Yorker magazine uh, when William Shawn was the editor who'd been the preeminent editor of the 20th century in American uh, letters. And so he was a, he, he helped me uh, with my craft enormously. Mm. Uh, I had wonderful mentors in uh, the church growing up. I was lucky enough to be at college with a man named Peter Gomes as the Mm -hmm. uh, pastor and my friend. And then uh, my first church that I went to in New York City was uh, pastored by William Sloan Coffin, who Mm -hmm. became a good and dear friend. Mm -hmm. But my my introduction to the wider world around me was facilitated by great friends who were forest rangers and things, but also by remarkable writers uh, who Mm -hmm. I think did as much as anyone else to help me find my place in the universe. Above all, uh, Wendell Berry, the Kentucky farmer and essayist, and mm-hmm. Ed Abbey, the irascible desert rider <laughs> of the Southwest, both of whom became friends, uh, mm. and um, whose work 
lives on. Many, many more. Terry Tempest Williams and Rebecca Solnit and uh, uh, you know, I've been I've been very lucky. The community of people who write about the natural world is one of the most robust and least egoistic of literary communities, and and it's been a great pleasure to be a part of it. Mm. Well, you know, thank you for sharing that part of yourself, and also so many of those those wonderful people. Um, whose names are continuing to circle around for those who continue to figure out how to be better advocates for the creation. Um, I know that the people in my congregations over the years have read many of those individuals and have been so stirred by them. And of course, now the people in those congregations are thinking about how they absorb that wisdom in those writings and then transform that in some way into creative and constructive action. And next week, um, actually at Roundhill Community Church, we'll be hosting an event that's being organized by the Interreligious Echo Justice Network. And their executive director is a wonderful leader named Terry Eichel, and she was a recent guest on our podcast and very inspired by Terry and her work. So my question here, Bill, is that as people now have this fund of wisdom and the language and the poetry that's continued to inspire us. Now we're thinking about how to make that action. When you speak, as you will next week, as our keynote speaker via Zoom uh, for that event, what are the hopes that you have for what people will take away from an event like that? In this case, it's interfaith communities, but we know that a lot of people from the wider you know, world, whether involved in a faith community or not, are going to show up at that event. Do you have a hope about what they will take away and what steps they might take uh, towards action? I do. Um, the American default, and it becomes stronger the more affluent an American becomes, is to be highly individual um, and always to think of action in an individual context. Mm -hmm. So if people start thinking about the crisis that is climate change, they begin quickly thinking about uh, if they're of good heart, uh, you know, what they can do in their house or their garage to make a difference, right. um, which is fine. I'm proud of the fact that my roof is covered with solar panels and that they're connected to an EV and things like that. But I don't try to fool myself that that's how we're, we're past the point where we can make the math of climate change work one Tesla at a time, one vegan dinner at a time. The most important thing an individual can do is be less of an individual, is mm -hmm. join together with others in movements large enough to have some hope of changing the basic economic or political ground rules. Mm. And as people say, okay, let's push a, a little bit farther along that road. Can you give an example of how you've seen people move in that direction? Sure. I've had the good fortune and good fun of getting to start a couple of uh, organizations. Uh, 15 years ago with some college students here in Vermont, I started something called 350.org that became the first grassroots global climate campaign. We've organized 20,000 demonstrations in every country on earth except North Korea. Um, so I've gotten to work with people literally every corner of planet earth uh, as they uh, build out robust 
uh, uh, efforts to change the status quo. People came together uh, with, you know, we were in sort of uh, among the people helping lead what turned into a decade-long fight to stop the Keystone Pipeline, the first big defeat that big oil has suffered. Uh, mm -hmm. We've run this massive campaign to divest institutions around the world from stocks in coal and gas and oil companies. That divestment campaign, originally recommended by Archbishop Tutu of South Africa as a kind of um, mm. uh, echo of the one that he ran to help end apartheid, uh, there a generation ago has now become the biggest anti-corporate campaign of its kind in history with about $40 trillion in endowments and portfolios participating, including a great, great number of faith communities uh, around the planet. So mm -hmm. those things are, you know, those are examples of the kind of work that people have figured out how to fold themselves into that have had enormous uh, results. And it takes all kinds of work, much of it mundane, an endless amount of phone calling, lobbying, Facebook posting, uh, yep. letter writing. And sometimes it's more dramatic. There are moments when one has to, um, you know, uh, spend one's body and go to jail. Um, mm -hmm. And so we've done a lot of that, too. Um, those are the kind of things that it takes. And I will say, young people have done tremendous job of this in recent years. Mm. Just tremendous. Mm. You know, as I say, I started 350.org with college students. This divestment campaign globally was run by college kids. When they got out of college, they founded the Sunrise Movement to bring us the Green New Deal, which is the reason that the federal government's finally spending money on, on renewable energy. And of course, you know about Greta Thunberg. Um, mm you know, one of my favorite people to work with on the planet. I adore her. She'd be the first to say there are 10,000 Gretas around the planet, mm. young people leading this work. I'm sure many of them in your community. Uh, uh, and they have 10 million followers. That's how many kids were out on school strike in September of 2019 mm. uh, before the pandemic hit. However, I, I really heard one person too many tell me that it was up to the next generation to solve these problems. And that right. didn't sit well with me. It seemed both ignoble and impractical uh, to take the biggest crisis the world has ever faced and turn it over to junior high school students to solve, um, which is the reason that in the last couple of years, we've formed this new organization called Third Act aimed at, you know, people over the age of 60 like me. I'm right there with you, Bill. <laughs> Everybody's headed our way eventually. That's the, that's the plan. Third act, um, also tracking along the same initiatives, still working on divestment. Uh, is there a way in which their work is the same and different? Yes, many of the same kind of campaigns, but third act has taken a particular interest uh, in uh, in some of these campaigns against the large banks, City, Chase, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, that are the biggest funders to the fossil fuel industry. Um, and I, I, I would just say in a place like Greenwich, that's likely to be the biggest leverage that anyone's likely to have is to try and get Wall Street to stop doing what every scientist 
has told them they must, which is funding fossil fuel expansion. So we we did a big uh, series of sit-ins outside those banks across the country in March. We had 100 demonstrations in 100 cities. I was in Washington, D.C., uh, where we closed down the branches for a day with um, a big sit-in. We're too old to just sprawl on the concrete for hours on end, so we had hundreds of rocking chairs and used those to uh, uh, shut things down. The New York Times the next day had a big story about the rocking chair rebellion. Um, mm. It turns out that older people are ideal in many ways for this kind of work. For one thing, there's a lot of us, 70 million Americans over the age of 60, 10,000 more every day, which is more than the number of people born in this country every day. Mm -hmm. uh, not only that, we punch way above our weight politically because we all vote. There's no known way to stop old people from voting. And um, we ended up with most of the money. You know, we've got about 70% of the country's financial resources. So we can be really effective in backing up the young people who are leading these fights. And it's fun. I remember the when Fridays for the Future, which is the kind of offshoot of Greta's movement, when their American chapters asked us to get involved in this bank work. Uh, and the very first demonstration we did outside some of these banks, there were lots and lots of high school kids there because there always are. They understand what they're staring down the barrel of. Um, and they're somewhat sprier, so they were out at the head of the march. But bringing up the rear was a big group of us from Third Act with a banner that said, fossils against fossil fuels. Um, <laughs> I think the key might be to not take ourselves too darn seriously. Uh, it's a pretty good way to deflect the, um, you know, OK Boomer sentiments of the, uh, uh, which are, in many cases justified of uh, younger people uh, uh, around the country. If um, if people want to know more about Third Act, is it a matter of getting to the website? Is there a good way to get information and get hooked in? Thirdact.org is a good place to start. And for yep. those of you in Connecticut, uh, there's a very active state chapter in Connecticut uh, headed by a Remarkable woman who you may have come across at some point or another, a woman oh, yeah. named Vita Foy Crabtree. Uh, she's already was, she's already put in a call to me. There you are, and I think she was the guy. <laughs> she she was she she was a, a cleric of uh, long standing in the Nutmeg State, and uh, yes. and knows her way around, um, and is a indefatigable organizer. Just the kind of person that's showing up all across the country. Yeah. Um, it's exciting to see people coming involved. You've provided vehicles for people who are of all ages, uh, basically, to get involved, which is so critical. I wanted to go back for a moment to this question about investors and investment and divestment. Are there people um, who you know, are connected with hedge funds, large investment for portfolios who've be, who've stood up and said, hey, I, I get it. I'm going to I'm going to step out. I'm going to try to lead the way here in a way that demonstrates that that's possible for others. Are there people who stand out in that way for you? Well, truthfully, there's some people who stood up and said some good things and then didn't follow through particularly well. Um, there's been a lot of backsliding in the last couple of years. 
Yep. Um, and I'm afraid it's been related as much to the price of oil as anything else. Um, mm -hmm. um, but there were, there have been, you know, from the beginning, some notable, notable leaders around the world who have been willing to put their money in where their mouths are on this. Um, most, notab most notably, and I got to say, it's one of the things that makes me happy to be a Christian in this uh, uh, day and age. Most notably, the Pope, um, mm. who has been very out front uh, uh, and very, very outspoken. And he has called on both fossil fuel executives and bankers in no uncertain terms, including with a brand new papal letter this last week um, to to take action because we're destroying the climate and because in the process we're making life impossible for the poorest people on this planet. Um, if we're commanded to love our neighbors, basically what we're doing at the moment is drowning our neighbors, sickening our neighbors, making it impossible for them to grow food, forcing them out of their homes with heat waves and famines. Um, this is the most serious, not only practical issue, but moral issue that we've ever encountered. The iron law of global warming is the less you did to cause it, the sooner and the harder you get hit. So mm -hmm. it's really, really important for people who profess a faith life to take seriously. Uh, you know, it should this should not be hard. The the mm -hmm. the the very first page of the Bible, and the Bible it strikes me is one of those documents that people are more likely to read the first page than many of the subsequent <laughs> ones. Um, um, uh, you know, the whole thing is just devoted to uh, God describing just how beautiful this place is and asking us to look after it, a job mm -hmm. we have manifestly failed at. We are mm -hmm. running Genesis in reverse and fast. We are engaged in the daily process now of decreation on this planet. And that redounds to the shame of everyone, but it probably redounds most to the shame of those of us who've professed to be uh, 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 believers in uh, a created universe. Hmm. Bill, when I um, think about the comment that you made, you know, you've, you've got solar panels on your home, and I'm thinking about churches that are slowly waking up to the power that they do have. Um, you know, during the pandemic, we had a dynamic group within our congregation that decided to step out as leaders and say, look, this is the time to solarize our campus. So we solarized our campus Good. and we were very happy to do that. Now we're, you know, trying not to rest on our laurels there. This is no time to do that. So we're taking one step after another. But I'm, I'm hearing, you know, this this double plight it's the it's the peril, yes, to the the atmosphere and the creation itself, but it's the incredible hardship inflicted on impoverished people across the world, people who are, who have already been struggling in so many ways. What would you say to local congregations who are saying, "Okay, Bill, you know, we can. There's a certain amount that we can do here. We can try to get the heat pumps in, and we're going to do ever our level best, right, to reduce our own consumption of fossil fuels." But what what would be the next most significant action we could take? Um, well, I mean, we've built up an extraordinary carbon debt. And even if we now start driving the right 
vehicles or, you know, producing our power in responsible ways, that doesn't erase the last 70 years of pouring carbon into the atmosphere, at which right. Americans, not Chinese, not Indians, not anybody else, have been the world champions. Um, the only way to erase that in a way that counts is with public policy, is with being deeply politically engaged to push to mm. make sure that we stop doing this. To give you an example, right now, America, forget what we're doing domestically to cut emissions, which we're finally beginning a little bit to do. America is the biggest exporter of fossil fuel around the rest of the world. And we're building more terminals in the Gulf Coast every day to export right. more and more and more fossil fuel. This is insane. I mean, if the analogy is to the you know, uh, uh, drug scourge, we've become Colombia, you know, um, and and it, it benefits very few people, most of them uh, who run oil companies. Um, we have to stop it and we can't. We're in the middle of a big campaign to do that right now. Um, and we need everybody backing it up, letting our politicians in Washington know it's not OK to keep on approving these things in mm -hmm. the end getting involved in things like that will be the thing that takes this, the power of those solar panels on your roof at the church and turns them into something that, that, that fulfills that promise, um, that, that makes, you know, that, that takes the promise inherent in those things and makes them very real, just as the kind of social and political outreach of the church on other issues takes the power of the cross on the roof of the church and makes it real, you know? Um, um, I, I, I think at this point, given the short amount of time we have left, the priority has to be for that kind of political engagement if we're going to mount a serious effort to defend our brothers and sisters around the world. Bill, first of all, it's been a wonderful conversation and you've given us really clear ways, I think, in which we can understand how to be engaged. We're not without recourse to engagement and that right. is good news. I, I have just a final question for you and I've been asking this question of everyone uh, with whom we've had a dialogue around these issues and that is, where do you currently uh, find your own conversation with nature taking place? Um, where do you find the spaces where it, uh, it speaks to you, you speak to it, you rest in each other's silences, whatever it might be? What's that for you? Well, I'm extremely lucky. I've sort of structured my life in order to be able to live out in the woods. And um, so I spend some large part of as large a part as I can rest away from the screen I spend uh, uh, out in the world around me. Look, that's sometimes a, an, a difficult thing now. Um, it, it was, it's 85 degrees today in October in Vermont. It's yeah. not supposed to be 85 degrees. We're setting new records. And right. so some of the act of being out in the natural world is bearing witness to the damage that we've already caused. But some of it is bearing witness to the extraordinary beauty of this world, even in its um, 
degraded and deformed and insulted state, we are the creatures that can bear witness. And it's clearly part of our job to do so, uh, to be out um, taking in the beauty of what uh, God made for us. And I hope that, uh, and I find in my own life that the more I'm able to do that, the more I'm sort of powered up to rise to the challenge of trying to stop the people who clearly don't care about that created order and mm -hmm. instead of succumb to a kind of greed that has hardened their hearts. And so I, I, I hope everybody in the park, in the, wherever you can, uh, get out a little bit and, and feel the sun and see the moon and uh, look at the seasons as they pass and take none of it for granted. We've taken it for granted for a long time, and that turns out to have been a big mistake. Yeah, yeah. Bill, uh, you, you're a remarkable person. We thank you for your faith and the wisdom you've brought to this incredible issue. And um, we feel very fortunate that you've been able to spend some time with us on Round Hill Radio. Well, the, the pleasure has entirely been mine. Thank you guys for your efforts and for just figuring out how to keep dialogue going. You're doing it in an important place because of the power inherent in the people around you. So many, many, many thanks for that. Blessings on your journey, Bill. Back at you. God bless. Thanks for listening. Roundhill Radio is brought to you by the friends and members of Roundhill Community Church. For more information, please visit roundhillradio.org.